0: This is a podcast from BBC Studios, the commercial subsidiary of the BBC.
1: Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out
0: its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the BBC Studios Talentworks podcast with me, Brona Monaghan. And me, Helen O'Donnell. This is an interview series with some of the most exciting and interesting and fascinating digital talent in the industry. Thank you so much for listening and please don't forget to subscribe. We are ecstatic to have Jamie Morton with us today. Jamie has been building his incredible CV, producing some of Britain's most popular TV formats, including four seasons of The Apprentice and two seasons of The X Factor. We also love the fact that Jamie's been part of the digital revolution, working on projects such as the international Emmy award-winning series Battlefront 2 and YouTube's first ever live-streamed entertainment series. What I'm sure most people will recognise Jamie as is one-third of the podcast industry's most groundbreaking formats My Dad Wrote a Porno, Alongside broadcaster Alice Veen and BAFTA-nominated producer and writer James Cooper. 130 million downloads, a best-selling book, a HBO commission, a sell-out live tour including one at the Royal Albert Hall, talks of a movie... Jamie, after listening to all of
2: no, that... No,
3: okay. I am going to be very disappointing to you all no. because that sounds more impressive than me.
0: No, we're just really interested to hear about your journey as a creative. Can you mm. tell us a bit more about that when yeah. you first realised you were absolutely.
3: Um, well, I went to university, uh, I went to the University of Leeds to study cinema actually. Which is a real degree, don't roll your <laughs> eyes, um, it <laughs> was very, very students. theory based, uh, yeah. Um, but I didn't do much of my degree at all, I immediately went into the student TV station, LSTV, where I met James and Alice, and loads of other people who've gone on to do incredible things. Our, our kind of group of um, alumni is quite impressive, like um, one of us, Lucy, she directs The End of the Effing World. Um, oh, I love One of our friends, Rob, he produced Paddington 2. Wow. Um, yeah, like, everyone's done really, really well out of our little group, which is really nice to kind of grow up together and be like, oh, you're doing that, and we're doing this. Um, and that was kind of the reason that I went into TV, really, because of the LSTV thing. I, I, I was never really into TV um, before, and having made it every single week um, with my mates, I thought, well, if I'm doing it for free... Didn't might as well get paid time. for it. I might as well get paid for it. Um, and what was great was because there was obviously people above me and years above me, uh, when they all went and got jobs in London, they all got us jobs when we graduated. So it was, it was kind of a really good little kind of... They, we used to call ourselves the Leeds Mafia because everyone <laughs> seemed... like there was, a, there was a period of like three or four years that everyone in TV seemed to have been to Leeds. Um, and that's kind of how I started. And when I kind of immediately started in the digital space, uh, my first job was... Uh, Sending Bebo messages into space. Uh, if you remember... Bebo, absolutely. Bebo, yeah, that was a very, very um, short-lived social network. <laughs> but, uh, it, was, it was actually quite groundbreaking. And they did a lot of original content and a lot of video stuff before kind of any of the other platforms were. Um, so Jamie, how, yeah. did
2: you know, how did you even know before that that you were creative?
3: Do you know I what I mean you, in terms of... I think you just know. I, was, I Yeah, I, I, I mean, I have a very creative family, um, and my parents have been really good at, well, obviously my dad is yeah. mental, <laughs> but before he started his creative journey in life, uh, my mum and dad were very supportive of my kind of creative um, passions, and they've never really ever been the sort of parents that would be like, um, you need to have a backup plan, or you need to do something, like, they've always been really kind of worryingly chill about it they're like well yeah you clearly are that sort of person and you're not an idiot mm. so i'm sure you'll find a way to make it work for yourself so um yeah ever since i was i was little they were they really kind of nurtured that 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 side of me which i think is actually quite lucky i don't think a lot of parents Definitely. are that kind of open to that as a as a potential career yeah. trajectory
0: and when it comes to sort of the success of a of a tv show how much mm. do you feel is it um it comes down to the creative, or how much do you feel it comes down to the marketing of a show? Because obviously you can be the most creative person in the world, but if you can't market
3: the product... Well, I mean, the interesting thing about that is that the the bigger a show gets, the less creative it becomes, because it becomes a kind of machine. So something like The X-Factor, for example, which is a great show um and and does what it does really really well but it is kind of like a factory show mm. um i'm sure at the beginning i didn't work at it in the in the in the early days obviously i'm not that old but uh i'm sure it was very creative at, at the start when they were kind of finding what they wanted to do and how they wanted to kind of um make it but as it goes on it kind of becomes this um this show that kind of produces itself in a way and and i think once you can build an audience and people want to keep coming back you can kind of if you choose to Mm. rest on that quite, quite well. I mean, I think marketing is kind of depressingly everything unless you, I mean, I was gonna say, unless you're someone that, that brings an audience, but that in itself is marketing. So I think to, to try and get something away completely originally is really difficult without a kind of real marketing push. And I don't think people are really that up for, experimenting with new ideas, particularly, you know, commissioners and things that, like, everything it feels like these days has to be based on something, has to have an IP already attached to it, which just feels a little bit um, depressing.
2: Yeah. I think... Um it's especially working in a traditional media space i think yeah. i totally agree with you it's very much it has to be something meets something yes. so oh it, it's it's top gear meets the kardashians like it, it can't be like <laughs> a which would be totally great <laughs> but it
3: it you're
2: right it always has to reference something that's been yeah. before
3: and i get that because you know you're, you're looking at, at huge budgets everyone's budgets are being you know um squeezed at the minute and commissioners and broadcasters really need to be able to as much as you ever can in a creative space, say this is going to fly, this is going to be a hit. But I think that's what's so exciting about new media is that you can actually do stuff on your own. Mm -hmm. But then there's the other side of that, which because you can, I feel like broadcasters and commissioners are like, well, you have to. We aren't going to fund you unless you can first of all Mm -hmm. produce a series of a podcast or, you know, a YouTube web series or something, so I think, as much as it's great that we can all go out and do our own thing now, I think it's also meant that commissioners are less likely to just take a punt on something completely fresh. uh They kind of want you to to kind of trial it first and shoulder all of the risk, you know spend all, all of your money to make something, and then if they like it, then they'll just grab it yeah, and I feel like that was something that um with porno became quite interesting. Um, when we got successful.
2: So tell us about My Dad Wrote a Porno. So mm. at the beginning, how did you feel that podcasting was the medium that you were going to go through?
3: Yeah, um, it was a very conscious choice, actually. Um, like, Serial had just happened. Right. Um, so Serial Season 1 that obviously kind of reinvigorated the whole podcast space, really. I mean, that was the most important show for the medium. And that just happened. And my dad had written these books, which... I should say are the worst books ever written, <laughs> um, and I apologise to the world for having to listen to them. Uh, and uh, and we wanted to do something with it, and we thought, well, we couldn't do, we couldn't film it because porn. Um, and we knew immediately that there was no point in going to any kind of a traditional, yeah, the gatekeepers, as it were.
2: And did you know that because you, yeah. you're in a lucky position that you almost understand what gatekeepers... You know, you were already in yeah. the yeah. industry, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you had that. Even know being in the industry, knowing oh, there's no point,
3: yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, there were just so many things about it that were that I mean that just shouldn't have made sense. I mean the show shouldn't be popular, really, when you think about what it actually is, you know it's three people discussing really bad erotica that's 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 pretty niche, yeah, um so we knew that, yeah, a broadcaster would never kind of bite that, um but we thought you know podcasting there's that element of a cult following a cult following, but also no one knows what you're listening to so that people could kind of secretly listen to this kind of smutty stuff on the tube and no one would know mm. a bit like how um kindle kind of started with 50 shades of gray a similar yeah. thing pornography is really pushing the media forward guys um i think that it was that kind of thing of you could be in this dirty little book club that no one knew you remember of Uh, that was kind of appealing and and the fact that we could just do it do it ourselves that was the really um kind of exciting thing about it because we've made it the three of us from the beginning we still do um and I don't think there's many other mediums that you could do that
0: and so what was the trajectory of listenership on the show did it did it all come down to the Frodo tweet
3: I really think it did. I think (laughs) Elijah was tweeting about it because that was like episode three, maybe it was really early. Like he's on his his content. He's he's great. Um, That really kind of just changed, yeah. And I think changed perception. I think we because it's got quite a noisy title. People were interested to click on it. Um, So I think we were already kind of building some sort of fan base or at least interest in terms of listenership um but yeah I think him endorsing it if you like publicly saying this is really good you should listen to it I think was a real yeah game changer for the show even though it was episode three so it wasn't like yeah. <laughs> we had to wait you know a season to do it but um but what, what's what been interesting about the show is that it, it kind of has been steadily rising from the start it's been it's been quite interesting it's I mean it's great for my dad as well because he it was a builder who so knows, no, knows nothing about the media industry and he thinks that everything's like this. <laughs> he, he just thinks that, oh, everything's going to be this big of a hit and, you know, everyone will optimist. love it. I'm like, Dad, you have no idea how many things I've worked on that just haven't worked or, you know, I couldn't get you know commissioned or whatever. So um we've we've been very lucky with this one.
2: So how do you so you edit the episodes as well. Mm, yes. So how do you find that from a creative perspective? So you're both the talent and the editor and you have to edit your friends. How mm. do you find that?
3: I wish I could edit my friends in real life. <laughs> uh, it would be great. <laughs> no, um that's my favourite part of the whole process. I mean, talent is such a hideous word, isn't it? And I'll I, take
2: I, it. Come on. <laughs> well, I don't
3: know. I feel like You know, Alice is a broadcaster, so she is talent. James actually started his career being a TV presenter as well. So they both had a bit of experience in in fronting a thing. I've always been kind of on the production side, so I've never been the person to be in anything. And I found that really difficult to begin with. Um, And I still do a little bit, because it just isn't really... I think you're either built that way or you're not. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really, um, even though I really enjoy doing our show. But for me, the the most exciting bit is getting it in the edit where I can just really kind of tear it apart, and I am a complete perfectionist in that. And and I think people don't maybe realise how produced the show is, because um, obviously we want it to feel like a, just a gem, like a free flowing yeah, conversation. Yeah, exactly. Like a yeah, a free flowing conversation. Exactly. Um, and it and and it is that, but it's very very tightly cut. And you know, I cut a lot out of the show, and I think it's really important to to kind of kill your darlings in that way.
0: And have you ever experimented with the format of the show? Because obviously the traditional format is that you're reading Mm. and Alice and James react. Have you ever changed that format?
3: Do you know what? No. And I think, again, our experience in, in TV probably informed that a lot. I think formats are really interesting kind of ephemeral things. I think the minute you have something that works, I think you have to know why it works. And be really careful about changing it up. And I think shows that have um, that have kind of been really successful and then kind of waned. I think a lot of that can be put down to them fiddling with the show. You look at something like Strictly. Strictly is the exact same show mm-hmm. that it was when it started, and it is as big as ever. Bake off, like there is. You know, I think you have to know when to tinker and when not to. Um, so we've been kind of really just careful about knowing that it's a really simple Mm -hmm. premise i read my dad's porn a chapter a week we talk about it um and the minute we started to get celebrity listeners we we did think about oh could they come on an episode could they listen to an episode with us but then we thought well no because that'll kind of just ruin the rhythm of the show and that's when we brought in the footnotes which is that our our midweek um episodes where we sometimes have a guest on sometimes just talk about general stuff that has come up that week or that we feel we, we, we want to expand on a bit more so we have changed the format in that we've introduced the footnotes but the actual core episodes I think it's really important to keep that kind of consistent
1: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time
2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: And now the show's grown. So you had a book, you've done your live shows. That then takes you out of the three of you kind of round a dining table, doesn't it? How have then you found working with other creatives on your baby?
3: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, and we haven't really, is the honest answer. And we have, and, and yeah, we, we it's been a really interesting kind of process because we never set out to make anything other than a podcast. The fact that we've been offered to do other things has been great. And we don't ever do th- something because we've been asked to do it. We have to find a real reason to do it and that we think is, we say, do write by Belinda, you know. If if there's a reason for it to be a book, let's do a book. If there isn't, then let's not because there's no point in just doing something because you've been offered it. Um, But we've been quite lucky in that we have learnt, and again, probably because we're 10 years into the industry, we've really learnt the value of our voice as the creators. So that we, you know, so our live show, for example, you know, we came up with that whole thing, we directed it, we produced it. Like, we, we obviously had people to help promote the show and we work with people to do that. But the actual creative show, we did it completely on our own. Um, Similarly with the book, you know, we wrote the book, we had an an editor, um, but they were kind of really good about letting us be us. And I think that's a really important lesson to learn is that we've done a few things with the show that haven't worked. And the reason they haven't worked is because we relinquished control Mm -hmm. because we kind of, you know thought oh well these people know what they're doing so we'll just you know let them take over a bit and, and, and it's never worked so so I think it's been a really good lesson to be like if you've created something believe in, in your voice within it and the fact that you have brought it from nothing to where you have, that isn't an accident You know, we wouldn't be on our fourth season with a yeah world tour and an HBO special mm-hmm. if this was just three friends kind of drunkenly chatting around the sure. kitchen table you know and I think there is real value in that and I think there's something about doing something on your own and not having the gatekeepers be there that you kind of feel a bit like oh should we be here and the minute more established people get involved you immediately think oh well they know better than me just because of who they are when actually that isn't always true so I think it's been interesting for us to kind of navigate that and realise that no we are the creators of this show and and we have a really, we you know we 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 know our show, we know our audience, we know what we want to do, um, and that's been really important to kind of keep it as core team as possible.
0: And so, is, is my dad wrote a porno your full time gig now, or are you balancing other creative projects alongside?
3: Always balancing. Okay. Um, just because. My whole job couldn't be reading my dad's porn that way. <laughs> it, could you imagine? Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, always. I mean, And what's been really interesting about my dad wrote porno for me is that, you know, I haven't... Comedy's not something that I've ever really um, done before. Uh, it's been a really interesting thing to, to do. Um, but I... We all want to do different things so that porno never becomes a full-time gig. Because we never wanted it to be a cynical endeavour. We never wanted it to be like... Guys, we've got to do a series because I have got to pay rent. You know, we wanted to do it because we wanted it to. We wanted it as a purely creative outlet, outlet for us all. Um, so we all do our other day jobs on the side. I'm a director, so I do a lot of stuff um, outside of porno. But yeah, I also do a lot of my own creative projects without the other two. I have a writing partner that I work with as well. Do you
0: well. kind of still view it as a passion project then? Hundred
3: percent. Yeah, yeah, and Which I think it's really nice. Yeah, I think the minute something becomes your full-time job, it just, subconsciously, it loses some of its excitement. Whereas it's still so fun, like we recorded last night. It's just so fun to get around the kitchen table, be with my mates and be like, oh my God, we're going to read another chapter because it's so crazy. Um, And yeah, to keep that kind of fun and, and touring the world with your mates. I mean, it doesn't get much. And your dad. Like my parents came to a bit of our Scandinavian leg of our tour. Um, Which was just so fun, just being on the road with my parents and my two best friends. I mean, you don't want that to become work. You want to retain that to feel special and a bit like, we made it, guys. You know, we literally took something from my dad's garden shed to HBO. I mean, it's pretty cool. It's
0: very impressive.
2: So, did you, when you said that you weren't a perf, you know you're you're not a performer, you weren't no. traditionally a comedian. No. How did you then find doing the live show? Was that a, did that because a book I can I can see you know you can still write around your kitchen table, whereas mm. a live show is quite a move forward, isn't it?
3: Absolutely. That was... especially the Royal Albert Hall, blimey! Yeah. Me. <laughs> like yeah. it's not
1: yeah, you Hall know Hall was... a
3: room above a pub. No, yeah. <laughs> Well, we've we we've, we've we've played insane like mean, the Royal Albert Hall, the Sydney Opera House, Chicago Theatre, Broadway. I mean, it has been insane the places that we've taken the show. I mean, we've probably closed all of those venues down. <laughs> um, Pornography is not welcome. Uh, it was really hard, honestly, for me particularly. I found it really difficult, and um, I got yeah, I, I I used to get so so nervous, like cripplingly nervous backstage it was it was weird because I'm not really a nervous person but
2: and it's not an act what you're doing is not an act you're you're being you aren't you
3: exactly like it should be the most simple thing to do in the world but there's and especially because our show was so cult that I knew that everyone in that room for us and wanted to have a good time but I don't know there was just something about it that just yeah I found it really really difficult but over time you kind of learn to to kind of get used to it. And actually, bizarrely, the Royal Albert Hall show was, that's, that's been my favourite show we've ever done. And I was so relaxed. How come? I don't know. I think, do you know what it actually probably was? Because it was such a, it was such a a huge show for us. Not just because, you know, five and a half thousand people, but everyone I knew was there. All my friends, my family, everyone. It was, it felt a really kind of, a real coming home show, you know, because it was the end of our world tour and it was like, you know we're doing this and it was so overwhelming that it it kind of made me forget that we were doing the show and actually this is embarrassing but forgive me just before we went on stage emma thompson popped backstage because she was at the show and we had some champagne with her and she was just so amazing she's so lovely and so supportive and just she's so great with young creatives she's Mm. a real kind of champion of of young talent and new talent and she was just so brilliant and and I was just like, I can't believe that we've met Emma Thompson. So going on stage was kind of like, I don't care anymore. Like, yeah. I peaked for this yeah. evening, uh, so it was a good distraction thing. So you know, when we tour again, I'll just bring Amen with me. Yeah, I'll be like, just let's have a drink before each each show, <laughs> distract me.
2: And the show, the show has gone from a podcast to where it is now. Mm. I mean, you, you mentioned that Serial was was a game changer. Porno is absolutely within that category. What do you feel the future of podcasting is? Where can it go? Oh.
3: I I love podcasting. I'm I'm so excited about where it's going to go. I just I recently um, helped judge a competition to find new um, voices within podcasting called Launch Pod, um, run by Acast and Wise Buddha, which was an amazing thing just to hear all of these amazing stories from from British voices, which I think is also really important because podcasting is so still so over overly American. In terms of its output, most of the big shows are American, and luckily we're kind of there, flying the flag for Britain. But I want to see loads more British shows. I, I really am excited to see the next "No Such Thing as a Fish," the next "Mad mm. About Porno" really break through and 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 find an audience because it's such a great medium. And I want to see more, yeah, drama. I want to see more narrative comedy, things that are different because you can tell so many different stories within a really. Intimate medium that people are obviously into within exciting.
0: those submissions. What was the standout category? Is is it very much there's a lot of comedy out there, or
3: um, do you know, they, they did a really good job of by the time it got to us as right. the judges for kind of giving us a real broad range of stuff. But there was some really int- there was a really great history one, um, there was a there, some comedy ones, an amazing one about um, a refugee. There was some really really brilliant ideas, and it just made me realize. There's just so much out there. And it comes back to your point about marketing. Like, mm-hmm. what's really annoying and frustrating is that do you need a noisy title like My Dad Wrote a Porno that's going to generate press interest and kind of build your profile enough to get listeners in? It's not just enough to have a great, great show, which is why, you know, I really try and champion new shows as much as I can and come on loads of podcasts. I think it's really important to to kind of lend your voice to other shows that are starting out and, and just need that bit of a push to kind of be seen and heard for the first time but i'm 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 really excited about where podcasting can go you know because people like helen zaltzman have been so brilliant and she's she's just i love her she's, I think she's in, in, incredible and she's been at the forefront of british podcasting from the very beginning you know years and years and years ago um and she's also really invested in kind of finding new voices and and really building a podcast community that supports each other which i think is is really exciting and i think there's a lot of potential still in in podcasting
2: well it's, it's like a shop with no definitive shelf space isn't it there's yeah. just like loads that you could do and going back to it, you know it's not like oh well there's only three slots available mm. well we've got our comedy right, filled exactly. so you, yeah, can't, yeah, yeah. you know if you if you have got a bedroom in sheffield and a mic you can do it
3: yeah which is amazing but that's a blessing and a curse because because whenever some everybody can do something it's so overly subscribed as an industry like there's so many. It feels like everyone's got a podcast. And you know, about a few years ago, everyone had a blog. Remember? Yeah, like and all, everyone was a vlogger for a while. Like, <laughs> everyone's a podcaster now, which is great. Um, but how how do you cut through the noise of that medium? I think it is challenging, but I also do think that good stuff does rise to the top. I do I do believe that. I think if you really are careful about it and and are disciplined, like that's one thing that we learned with pod, with with porno as well, is that if you're asking a stranger to listen to your show for 40 minutes out of their day, you really owe them the best 40 minutes that you can produce. Like, you really need to cut it. You really need to make sure that it is accessible to a listener that isn't your best mate. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of podcasts are a bit like that, you know, that kind of rambling chats about things that I don't have an access point to. You know, we've all, with our show, we've been really careful that no, we don't talk about anything outside of the podcast unless a listener hasn't into it you know we, we don't talk about our mates that no one knows because that's so alienating it suddenly you feel you don't feel like you're sat around the table with us you feel like you're kind of outside looking through a window at us which we never wanted to feel like so if we if we reference a joke it's always a joke that's been born out of the podcast that we know that they will have been in on the joke with us um so i think that's that, that that's that's really important.
0: And so I guess you're already giving it, but what would be the advice you'd give a sort of a future creative?
3: Just do it. Like, uh, yeah. That's, That's the biggest thing. I think if you are a creative and you're creatively minded, you are already that way inclined and you're doing it. But I think it's one thing to say, oh, I'm going to, you know, write this script, or I'm going to do a podcast. Like, you actually have to physically do it. You know, I I could have been talking about, oh, my dad's written this book, and yeah, it would make a really good podcast, and like, that could be great down the pub, you know, for a year I could be talking about it, but you actually have to then make it. And then when you make it, you know, my whole life has changed, really. Um, So I think it is really that simple, because I think people who are creative, you, you will always be creative, that's not the problem. The problem, I think, is discipline with anybody who wants to actually turn their, their passion into a profession.
2: Brilliant. Thanks so much, Jamie, for oh, chatting my to God, us. Oh,
3: pleasure. Chat for ages.
2: Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more about us, we're on Instagram at BBC Studios Talentworks. This
0: podcast is produced by Shola Aleje for BBC Studios.